Fair enough. That works. Oh, there we are. Good. Okay. So for today, let us, um, if you would, we're going to read some. We're going to dive right into scripture first, and then we'll, we'll talk about it later. So um, today's scripture once again comes from First John. We've been here for several weeks, and so if you would uh, grab your Bibles and turn with me to there, we'll be in First John chapter three. Now, First John is one of the last books of the Bible, so just open up to the back, turn past Revelation, Jude into Third, Second, First John. We're going to be in chapter three, starting in verse four. And so as you're turning there, as you guys are getting there, I want you to be thinking of. Um, because these are some pretty simple sayings that he has here, but what is the depth behind them? They're simple things. They're things that we all can probably have heard before or know, but he's saying them for a reason. And even though they're simple, there's a lot of depth to them. And so as we're reading these these sayings and this passage and what John has to say to us and actually to the first people and for us now, um, think about what the depth of this is today for us. All right, so starting in verse 4. John writes this, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abide in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. All right, if you would, let's pray and ask for some illumination in this passage. Dear Father, as we dig into these words from John, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be working in our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our um, souls and and, and with each other that we may understand what you are saying to us and why your words um, were written down um, and why they've been preserved for us today. Lord, as I talk and, and dig in, Lord, I ask that all of what we talk about be for your glory and honor, not for myself. For your, in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So, one thing that this passage brought up to mind, one, one picture that it brought up to mind was when I was uh, doing yard work. When I was in seminary, one of my jobs that I did was I worked for a professor that lived nearby and, and specifically his wife, and, and she had me doing a lot of yard work. Every week I'd go over and do three hours of yard work. And there was one week in particular where she sent me out to the berm on the outside of their property and asked me to weed it. Now, being from northern Iowa, I've never really encountered ivy before, um, and this was my first experience. It wasn't poison ivy, thankfully. It was just regular ivy, but it was it was everywhere. It just covered the whole ground. Um, and so I went to work for that three hours, and it was a long three hours going through and picking up, you know, picking out all the ivy I could see. And, and I found that you would grab one vine, right, and you'd trace it back to its source, or what I thought it was its source, and that would all of a sudden turn into five more. And then you'd trace one, another line over, and oh, that would go to a source, and that would go into five more. And eventually it's like a net, and you keep going from vine to vine, and they keep planting, because what happens is these vines, as they're growing, and then they touch the soil, eventually they start to grow new roots. 
And so there's not just a source plant anymore. There have become multiple sources, and they keep going, and they cover this. And so I was working and sweating my way, and eventually I pulled out all of these different sources of vines and groups of vines and, and got it all cleaned out. And it was pretty satisfying, even though it was really hard work to do all of this, to look and say, okay, we've got a clean berm. This is, this is nice. Two weeks later, I come back, and it is now like I have never weeded before. It is covered in ivy all over again, because as I come to find out, if you don't dig out every single piece of roots from those ivy, it will grow back in the same way and just as much as it has in the past. <sighs> so, as you can imagine... Digging out every single ivy root in that 100-meter-long berm was going to be impossible. I wasn't going to be able to get all of this ivy out unless we physically removed the berm and put new dirt in, which wasn't feasible. So this became a constant battle, not of eradicating the ivy, but of kind of managing it and and taking it out where I saw it, where we found it. It was more of a... um, um, Yeah, removing it rather than solving the problem once and for all. And... And this is exactly the battle that John is trying to explain to us of sin in our lives. Weeding out the sin that we can see, the stuff that's above ground, it's tough work and it takes a long time. And it can be rewarding there, but there's still those roots underneath. For every sinful vine that we can see, there's a root system that we can't see that will continue to sprout new vines unless we get rid of that. And until our mortal bodies are completely replaced we won't be able to get rid of every single root in there. But this is exhausting work, right? To think about, oh, I've got, one, just picking out the sins that you can see, and then two, digging down into life to get to all of the roots of sin as well, and knowing you're not going to get to all of it and having to manage it, that's exhausting. It's an exhausting thing to even think about. It'd be a whole lot easier just to, just to let it grow and let that berm turn into a big mess and call it an ivy garden. Right, But this was the message that John was writing against in our passage. False teachers were sitting there. They're telling people that what happens to your fleshly bodies doesn't actually matter because God never came in the flesh. Jesus wasn't actually God. So go ahead, let your sinful ivy grow and and let it become an ivy garden um, because it doesn't matter anyways. The spiritual and the physical realities don't affect each other. They're not related. But John has been rebuking this message throughout the letter here in 1 John. And he's been rebuking the messages that derive from it as well. Showing that our physical actions are a result of the spiritual reality of the roots that are underneath. And so if our lives are completely overgrown with sinful ivy where we can see it on top, we can be sure that the roots of evil have a pretty firm grip on us underneath where only God can see Now, the good news, which John writes to the first century church and which applies to us today, is that Jesus takes away our sins, ivy and roots and all. He's destroyed the stranglehold that sin has on our lives, and he's planted good and beneficial plants, and he's mulched it, and he's put in beautiful trees and flowering things that take root and grow in us, which John calls righteousness. And so if if Jesus takes away our sins, he has done the hard work of digging out all of these roots and and taking away the vines and helping us to do this, well, then we should help work with him instead of against him. Let's, Let's work with him in keeping this ivy back and where it comes up and where it sprouts up to deal with it and not just ignore it and let it grow. 
Because though Jesus has destroyed the power of sin in our lives, the fullness of God's kingdom has not come yet. We live in a world that's overgrown with ivy, and the roots and the vines in our lives will continually try to take control until we're given a new body in the kingdom of God, until that berm is completely replaced. And then there we'll be free and immune to sin. But until that time, we have to keep grappling with that ivy, that sinful ivy in our lives. But John communicates these promises that result from Jesus taking away the sins. Number one, he says, Jesus destroys the work of the devil. If you look with me in verse 8, going back into chapter 3, John states this. He says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So how does this concern us? Jesus is the one doing this work. What does that apply to us? Well, back in verse 4, he writes this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. All right, now that seems like a pretty straightforward message. I said, kind of introducing this, this is simple things. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is bad, right? Don't practice sin because it's bad. And this message is still part of the overall message from the passage from last week. And John's writing this to the little children. That's why he's keeping this simple. He's saying for those of us who are just beginning our faith or just beginning to grapple with our faith, and you might be easily swayed by persuasive arguments like the, the people in the first century church were, um, their message isn't true. And he's keeping it simple so you can see the simplicity of the truth. And yet, even in this simplicity, there's a whole lot of depth for us whole lot of depth we don't always grasp he says sin is lawlessness sin is the opposite of keeping the laws of nature it breaks the laws of nature now john isn't talking about the laws of nature that we humans have usually labeled as as laws of nature because when at least me i'm a nerd so i think of this way when you think of laws of nature i think of science i think of physics i think of several of those laws that we we have labeled the laws and, and this is how things work that's not what John's talking about here. No, he's talking about the laws that nature abides by in order for creation to thrive. These are God's laws. So when John writes that everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, he's telling us that everyone who makes a practice of sinning is actively hurting themselves. They are doing the opposite of what makes us live and thrive. So obviously, don't do that. Right? <laughs> don't practice the things that actively are killing you because that's how these vines of sin grow and they take root in another spot and then those branches then that vine branches off into several more vines and then they continue to grow and make more root systems and this is a key takeaway here john's not saying don't sin be perfect. No, he's not saying be perfect because he knows that's impossible for us. He said that back in chapter 1. In verse 8, he writes that if we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. Because if we deny that sinful, sinful vines are present, if we just ignored that the ivy's there and we don't weed them out, it's just going to take over. That's the harm of saying that, oh, I don't sin. I'm trying to pretend that you're perfect. You're ignoring the thing that's slowly strangling your life. So what he is saying, he's not saying don't sin, he's, he knows you're going to, but he is saying don't practice sin. Don't keep letting those vines of sin keep growing in our lives uncontrolled. Keep weeding them back as you see them, deal with them, work on them. 
Address the ones that are there. Don't ignore them. Okay, so how do we practice? How do we stop practicing sin then? Well, first let's start with, um, this is a really challenging question, and it really challenged me. Maybe it'll challenge you. If not, great, but I think it probably will. Richard Baxter, he's a pastor, he writes this in that he would go visit all of the people in his congregation, and he would ask them a series of questions, and this is one of them. And I'm going to paraphrase it here. He says this. I think it'll be up on the screen too. It says, Can you truly say that all the known sins of your past life are the grief of your heart? and that you have felt everlasting misery from them, and that under a sense of this heavy burden, you have felt yourself a lost man, and have gladly entertained the news of a Savior, and cast your soul upon Christ alone for the pardon by his blood? I don't know if anyone fully grappled with that entire question, because there's a lot there. So let's kind of reflect a little bit on this phrase by phrase. So first he says, can you truly say? So, can you say with a deep down understanding and conviction that... The sins of your life, from your past life to this, what's the sins you're committing right now, the ones that you know of, grieve you. And that because of them, because you're seeing how they actively hurt and harm your life, how they are actively killing you, that you feel the weight of the misery that that brings, and how that weight and misery is everlasting without Jesus. And... Can you feel how heavy those sins are? Do you feel yourself a lost man because of those sins? And through this, do you gladly entertain the news of a Savior and cast your soul upon him saying, take this, it's too heavy for me? Is there anything in your life that the Bible would call a sin or that you know, you've heard taught um, rightfully, hopefully, that the Bible would call a sin that you don't feel grief over? That's probably the sin you're practicing. And so what do we do with it? How can we grieve something that we're not really sorry for, something that we're not really sure why it's a sin? Well, we bring it to God. We offer it up to Jesus and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand it and to feel grief over it, saying that, Lord, I know your ways are higher than mine. I know you're God and I'm not, and I don't understand why this is a sin. I don't know why you call this a sin. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't see it killing me. But you say it is, so I'm going to give it to you. Because only then will we be willing to stop practicing it. And only then will he be able to show us why it is. Now, okay, so let's practice this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this from the church's perspective. There's a number of sins that the church, is, the church practices, and we don't maybe either we we don't want to call them sins or or they're 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 nice, and so we don't really want to uh, get rid of them. We don't want to root them out. One of those is that often the church, Christ Church does this, and surrounding churches do this. We focus on our image, we focus on branding, and we focus on entertainment. Because it fills the seats up, and that feels good, and that looks nice, and it, it's, it, it feels like success. But that's sinful. That's not what church is about. That's We are actively hurting 
all of us by doing that. We sin by teaching all of us to be judgmental rather than being full of grace when we encounter sin. Rather than helping people heal, we look at them and say, nope, you're unclean. Clean yourself before you come here. That's not at all what the church is for. We put on this facade, and pastors especially, we put on this facade of perfection. Our lives, we live such a holy life and we we don't want you to see the dirt in our lives because we're afraid what you might say or how you might think of us or how you you won't listen to us if you know that I've got dirt in my life. I do. (laughs) Yep. And another thing we don't do is we don't discipline in love. We don't come alongside in love and graciously and say, hey, what you're doing here is sinful. Let us help you. Let us guide you towards life. We don't do that as a sin or as a church because it's uncomfortable. Because we're afraid that we're going to be um, driving people away. They'll just go to the next church. But man, that's a sin in and of itself too. And maybe the biggest one that we do, although each sin there is no bigger sin than the other, one of them that we do is we teach. That salvation is obtained through saying a set of words. There's a set prayer that you can say and you're saved rather than a complete reorientation of your life. Salvation doesn't come just by saying certain words. Salvation comes from true belief. And yet it's so easy for us to say, just say this prayer and you're saved and that's fine, rather than taking the hard steps of walking with a person, grappling with what salvation is. These are things that we do as a church, that leadership does in the church and they're sinful and we need to stop practicing them all right so this was maybe my my sense of confession up here um let's go into one that maybe all of us can can relate to a little bit so in our own lives some of these sins that maybe are a little bit littler and 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 we don't think about grieving one is uh thinking about in the workplace a lot of them happen in the workplace when Perhaps we're designing products and we design them cheaply and so we meet financial goals and and whatnot and budgets, but the way they're produced, the way they're designed, the way they're used is harmful to the environment. That's sinful. That's not being good stewards. Or perhaps we uh, grab a few office supplies and we take them back home with us for our personal use. That's stealing. Seems like a small thing, but it is stealing. Or perhaps we, we encounter a problem at work and we we don't want to go through the mess of fixing it, so we fix it long enough so that we won't have to deal with it, but the person down the line will have to deal with it. That's sinful. Or when we're selling something, we use pressure tactics to get to, to close the sale, or or we convince people to buy things that they don't need and they can't afford also sin. And most of these things I would say the world can agree with, right? These are sins that the world can say, yep, those are bad. We shouldn't do them. We do them, but we shouldn't do them. Now, how about some of those in our personal lives that uh, the world's a little bit more accepting of, such as slander and antagonization of the people that that are our leaders? How often have we spoken disrespectfully of the people in leadership? such as Trump and Obama. That's sin. No, you can disagree with them, 
but Paul, call, Paul writes this and he lives it out himself. He even doesn't speak disrespectfully to the very high priest who decided to get Jesus crucified. It's a big deal. Or what about watching or reading um, softcore materials such as Game of Thrones or reading Fifty Shades of Grey or other media and entertainment like that? has an effect on us or maybe one that's a little bit grayer that we can wrestle with together should we be actively contributing to entertainment that results in significant levels of brain trauma for the participants i'm talking football hockey soccer and a lot of other contact sports that's tough because we're on the blues are on a good run they're in a good place right now right Jesus takes away our sin and he destroys them because they are the work of the devil. So we should give them to him, even if we don't understand why they're sinful or we don't want them to be sinful or we we want to be comfortable with them and we don't grieve them quite yet. Give them to him, offer them up to him and say, your ways are higher than mine. Help me understand and help me change. Because then when he takes them away, This is our second point, final point for today. Jesus plants righteousness in their place. For this, let's back up to to verse 3 in chapter 3, and also we'll go down to verse 7 too. And it says this, Everyone who thus hopes in him, in Jesus, purifies himself as he, that is Jesus, is pure. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, that is Jesus, is righteous. When we confess our sins, when we explicitly proclaim our hope in Jesus as our Savior, the only one who can help us get out from underneath the stranglehold of sin in our lives, and when we hope in him, he purifies us just as he is pure. And through that process and in the place of sin, we receive Jesus' righteousness, not our own, not something that we have to cultivate and do our own. No, we receive his Righteousness. All right, now righteousness is one of those words that we throw around a lot in in church. um, And we do it in the church setting so that we can sound more righteous. But let's take a moment to understand what are we actually saying here? What does righteous mean? What is righteousness? So the commentator, and there's a pastor, his name is Douglas O'Donnell. He clarifies this really well, kind of taking all the times that John said this in, in this epistle. He says this, we've seen several times in this letter that what John means by doing right. To do right is to count on God to be your source of life. To be the only one who can tell you who you really are. And to make us all he created us to be. His very daughters and sons. We are made pure and right in this hope and obeying him out of this hope. Counting on him to take all we give him and transform it for our deepest joy in life. Righteousness means to count on God for your life as the source of our lives. But as we've explored a bit this morning, we're not always good at that. And that's okay. It is. In fact, even admitting that we're not, that we're not good at that is an act of righteousness because we're admitting to God that we need his help in everything. In fact, we even need God's help in needing God's help um, we need God to help us need him. 
and admitting that is an act of righteousness. And the beautiful news is that Jesus gave us his righteousness when we believe in him. Jesus gives us that desperate sense of need for God to sustain the life that he had in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying so hard that he sweated blood. And when he relied on God so completely and obeyed him so completely that he shed his own blood on the cross for our sake. And he gives that to us. And so as we grow in that, as we grow in our dependence on God, we steadily keep planting righteousness in in our lives so that soon sin struggles to find a place to take root and grow. As we practice righteousness, our lives bloom in a beautiful commitment to love our brothers and sisters. For God made us in his image. God himself is in communion. He's the three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All together, they are in communion with each other. And so we need communion with the people around us to be fully ourselves. In verse 10, John writes this. He says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother family of God, as Jesus takes away our sin, he replaces it with righteousness, which results in love for our brothers and sisters. So give him the sin that actively kills us and cultivate the love that actively allows us to thrive in the way that we were created to live. And then, this is our closing, what I want to close with today. We'll get to cry together and we'll fully, truly know these words in Psalm 51 that David writes. He writes this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased by burnt offering, but it is the sacrifices of God that are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Amen. If you would join with me in praying for that and asking for that, dear Lord, as we are confronted with the effects of sin, knowledge that sin is lawlessness, that it kills us, Lord, we give to you these sins and these things that we don't really understand why and we don't feel grief over because you tell us we should and we want to follow you and this is our, our act of hope our profession of faith in you that your ways are right and good and they lead to life and so even though they don't look like they lead to life and that this way is perfectly fine lord help show us the ways that actually do lead to life send us your holy spirit help us need you and in that lord help us thrive and love each other and feel the beauty and the the glory that is the community of our brothers and sisters Oh, Lord, we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.